Hello and welcome to all my fellow budding ecologists, biologists, and all the other ologists out there. I'm your host, Meredith Meeker, and I am delighted to present to you another episode of the Emerging Leaders for Biodiversity podcast. This episode has been recorded from the Williams Treaty territory of the Mississauga Nation. This week, I had the opportunity to virtually sit down with another fantastic biologist, Carl Lamoth. Carl is a research biologist for Fisheries and Oceans Canada, specializing in small-bodied fishes. Though, apparently swimming with hammerhead sharks doesn't scare him. He completed his undergrad and master's in the United States, but came up to Canada to complete his PhD at the University of Toronto. I felt very fortunate to sit down with him and pick his brain on fish, what it's like to be a research biologist, and working for a big federal organization. So let's get into it. We're going to jump right into it today, starting off with the tough questions. What is your number one book recommendation or the favorite book you've got on your shelf? It's a really hard question. I spend a lot of my time generally reading the peer-reviewed literature, but when I, when I do get the chance to open up a book, I do like to read nonfiction most of the time. So I recommend The Death and the Life of the Great Lakes by Dan Egan. But if you're looking for a more uh, lighthearted read, I recently had read Moonwalking with Einstein, The Art and Science of Remembering Everything. It's a really cool book about uh, memory and the quest to remember everything that you can. Cool. Those sound like slightly different topics, but both very, very interesting. We've had the pleasure of speaking before, but obviously not everybody listening has. So can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and what it is you you do? Uh, sure. I'm a research biologist at Fisheries and Oceans Canada. My home base is at the Great Lakes Laboratory for Fisheries and Aquatic Sciences in Burlington, Ontario. And that's on the traditional lands of the Mississaugas, the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation, the Neutral Nation, the Haudenosaunee's, and the Anishinaabe's. And so my research is really uh, designed to uh, support the recovery of imperiled small-bodied fishes here in Canada and mostly in the Great Lakes Basin. So small-bodied fish, for us non-fish experts, can you tell us what is an example or why are small-bodied fish important? Yeah, so small-bodied fishes, I consider small-bodied fishes to be about less than 15 or 20 centimeters in length. Generally, people think of some examples might be common shiner, long-nosed dace, one of the recently listed species, the red-side dace, which is found here in southern Ontario. And, and small-bodied fishes are extremely important because they're, they're part of our natural ecosystem. They support larger organisms as prey. They help to recycle some of the lower trophic level uh, organisms. And so 
they kind of fit that niche as between the lower trophic levels and those higher trophic level predators. Yeah, they're an important connector in the ecosystem. Every species has its place, and I think that's why ecology and biology is so cool. And it's neat that you're studying a, a species or a group of species that really have a niche and you're getting to know it well. Absolutely. And, and small-bodied fishes are actually some of the most at-risk fishes that we have here in Canada. So, you know, there's all there's over 50 species of freshwater fishes that are listed for protection in Canada, and half of those are in Ontario, and half of those are actually small-bodied. So, so there's clearly a need that we have to understand these species so that we can hopefully garner their recovery. Yeah, thank you for shining a light on those, because I think when people think species at risk, you know, if it's fish, it might be sturgeon or those really large charismatic species, but we need to protect all of our freshwater species. So in terms of that's what your general purpose is, what does your day-to-day look like? Is there a big difference between what your day looks like in the summer versus in the winter? Sure. My my day-to-day is is mostly in front of the computer, but but what I'm doing generally does uh, change from winter to summer. So the research that we do in support of freshwater fishes, it's a team it's a team endeavor. So it goes through cycles, it's ongoing. In the wintertime, generally we have a smaller team. We're going through gear, we're making sure that it's ready for next year. We'll be going through voucher specimens uh, that were collected in the field the previous summer. Well, our technicians will be identifying those, the species, counting them, measuring them, and recording those in field notes so we have records of those. But in the summer, that's when our field technicians are getting out there. They're going out and sampling for freshwater fishes. We'll have several projects ongoing from our own to helping with graduate students' projects. And all through that, we could get questions to provide science advice on projects that maybe might pose a threat to species at risk. And all through that as well, we're writing reports and we're, and we're trying to write peer-reviewed papers and we're, we're trying to communicate our science. Do you have a lot of technicians that work with you and, and for you? So we have a few full-time technicians that work for us. And then during the summertime, at least in the previous years before COVID happened, uh, we would have about a dozen field technician students that would come in and uh, work with us from the late spring to the early fall. Just curious, did you start your career as a technician? Or maybe you can tell us about your journey from where you started and, and how you got to become a research biologist. You know, a couple of our permanent folks did start off as field technicians. So that's in the fishes department and for freshwater mussels. So that's really cool. For me, I, I did not uh, start as a field technician. I actually grew up in the United States, um, in New England, in, on a, in a small town on the east coast of Connecticut. And so I went to university in Connecticut. I went to a small undergraduate a university and I, I got interested in research by doing a undergraduate project on the population genetics of European black terns, which is a small water bird. It's That's we have not black, a fish. <laughs> nope, nope. It's a small water bird. We have them in Canada as well. But it really sparked my interest in doing research and kind of uh, generating that knowledge. So I ended up going to graduate school and to do my master's in Arkansas, where I transitioned to fish and 
and largemouth bass. That's what I was working on population genetics studies there. And then I kind of realized, I, or I felt that I was, I was lacking a little bit in terms of my, my quantitative abilities to really become a researcher, to, you know, to, to be a researcher for my full-time job. So I jumped into a heavily quantitative PhD at the University of Toronto, did that for four years, finished that in 2017, started a, a postdoc position with Fisheries and Oceans Canada, and uh, recently transitioned to a research biologist position, which has just been really the dream. Well, congratulations on landing your dream job then. Thank you. I appreciate it. I, I feel extremely fortunate. Well, maybe you can pass on some of that good fortune. Any advice that you wish you could give to other people starting out or wish you had known when you were starting out into your, your career path? Yeah, so when I started undergraduate, my undergraduate degree, I originally thought that I wanted to go into medicine. And so I was really focusing on those courses and, and not necessarily paying attention to some of the other courses that I was taking that were important, but I just felt like they weren't. Um, one of those really is statistics. And, and I think that if I, if I paid a little bit more attention in my undergraduate, I probably would have had an easier time during graduate school, at least in the beginning. So, you know, given, given the trajectory of biology and ecology jobs becoming more quantitative, I would say that's probably one of the skills that I wish I started off with. That's great. I've definitely found that having stats, I didn't pay attention in university either. It felt like, why am I doing this? I want to do ecology. But there are actually some great free online courses that can get you a great basis in, in R and, and other stats. So recommend checking those out too if you're maybe done your university or your undergrad. So now you've landed the dream job. What's the best part of it? Uh, the best part about my job, I, I, you know, during my PhD, I really grew to love writing. I, I love to write about fishes and I love to write about ecology and I love to learn about ecology and one of the cool things I really get to do is I get to take data from our technicians that they work hard to generate and I get to use that data to tell a story about some of the freshwater fishes that we have here um, particularly in southern Ontario so I feel I feel fortunate to be able to do that on a daily basis. That's great I mean I'm not gonna lie Writing is not the best part of my job, so I'm glad that it's the best part of your job because somebody's got to do it, and I'm glad that you love doing it. <laughs> so, I mean, I guess I kind of segued into this. Writing is not the best part of my job. If every job was only the fun stuff, the glamorous stuff, it would be very easy to find your dream career. But you got to be able to handle some of the less fun or more tedious work. So what's the worst part? of your job? This is a tough question. And I, I think my the toughest part of my job is less like physical or the things that I do. I think it's more philosophical and the reason why I'm doing my job. If everything was really nice and our natural world was doing well, my job wouldn't exist. So we wouldn't have to be here doing research to support these species. They'd be self-sustaining and they'd be living on their own. So Although I really love what I do in terms of doing research to support their recovery, there's always kind of this pressure that, well, these species are on the decline and they could be extirpated uh, while we're here. And so 
that's probably the hardest part. But I guess some people would also say that me being a laptop junkie and it's kind of against what a traditional biologist or ecologist love to do, but I actually really like it. Hey, I'm asking what's the worst part of your job. We're not talking to other people. So I can totally <laughs> see how, you know, we talk about burnout in the environmental field and people wanting to do as much as they can. And one of my previous guests, I really like how she put it. You know, you might only be working on a small piece, but if you work on your piece and you do it well, then you're allowing other people to work on theirs. And hopefully, if we all do a really great job with our own little piece, it comes together in a big puzzle. And, you know, we can make a real difference in our lifetime and we won't see those species be extirpated. I really like that. That's a that's a really great way to keep your your mind level-headed and and I like to do things as much as I can to to lift my spirits before I necessarily might be working on something that might be a little bit a uh, little bit difficult so yeah what well, might be one of those things just curious if you need a mood boost or a yeah yeah I, I like to go I like to cycle so that's one thing I might do I used to cycle to work and from work every single day so it provided me with a little outlet before and after work a little decompression and pumping me up in the mornings but otherwise we I, I like to take my dog out for a walk try to get outside really just try to clear my head mm -hmm. I'm guessing you're commuting a little less these days yeah so at our at our job right now we're only at 20 percent uh, capacity so most of the people that work at the Canada Center for Inland Waters are working from home if they can so I've been working home since working at home since March uh, that's a long haul. I mean, there's no no question that the world is changing. How we're going to be doing work is going to change. So is there an area of expertise or a special skill that you think is going to be in more demand than ever before? That's a great question. I think societal uh, problems are getting more and more complex. And so we're often relying on these more technical and, and quantitative models and forecasting for informed decisions. And so so I, I'm always advocating for getting those really technical skills. But we also need people to be on the other side of uh, the quantitative things and, and teaching us how we can really make, how we can agree on doing different tasks in everyday life. So it's not just the science that's informing this. It's generally we have problems that are socio and ecological. So we need people on both sides that can really communicate between those two fields, the quantitative and the qualitative, and, and really use those to make decisions. Yeah, that's great. Communication is more important than ever. I think we're seeing that, you know, with having to do Zoom and, and even just the lack of scientific understanding that we're seeing around the virus and, and that kind of thing. So yeah, yeah, it's important. The communication, it's it, it's extremely important that we're transparent with our science and our advice. So we want to make sure that we're communicating to the best of our ability. Mm -hmm. Totally agree. So I've got two of the most common questions we get from our members for you. Okay. So if someone is applying to a job and you're looking at it, the strict one page cover letter rule, do you think that still applies or is it more important to get all your qualifications in there? 
when I'm looking at a cover letter, I'm accepting of two pages rather than just a strict one page. But I, I do agree that it should remain concise, as, as concise as possible in that language. It needs to be spot on. Mm-hmm. I think the challenge is when you've got a job posting that's got, you know, 10 qualifications, it can be hard to fit that in one page. So, yeah, two seems good as long as it's concise and you're not rambling. I mean, and I'll note, too, for for a government position, it's really important that you you nail each one of those points. So sometimes it does require a little bit more. Mm -hmm. No, that's great. Now you have your PhD, so I'm excited to hear your thoughts on this. A lot of people coming out of school, they're, they might be going straight into a master's. Is a master's required for advancement at your organization or in your field? In terms of advancement, it really depends on what you want to do with your degree. So we have people on our team that have PhDs, obviously, like myself, and we're you know people like myself are helping to design the research that's going on. We're 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 coming up with the the ways that we're going to go about some experiments or some monitoring programs. But we also have people with their bachelor's degrees and with their master's degrees that are that are working from field technicians to later on biologists that are that kind of span from being on the field to being more uh, in front of the computer and doing more quantitative analysis. So it really depends on where you want to be and how you want to position yourself in terms of your job and, and what you want to do. But I mean, a master's generally doesn't hurt. Yeah, for sure. So last career type question for you. If you have somebody who's come to you and wants to know how to make their application stand out, because I'm sure you get hundreds of applicants with your job postings, is there something? Yeah. Okay. More than that. What's something that can, you know, help get someone to the top of the pile? It's really difficult. Some, a lot of people have the exact same resume, so sometimes it can be really challenging, but always experience, experience is what stands out. And I understand that experience is uh, really challenging to get because you, you can't get experience until somebody gives you the opportunity to have experience. But I'd recommend that, that to get that experience, to get creative, to get involved with local groups or organizations like the Emerging Leaders for Biodiversity and really contribute to yourself, uh, your own growth. And I think that will shine out a little bit through your application. That's great. Thank you. Yeah. Try and get that experience. Join Emerging Leaders for Biodiversity if you haven't already. Great place (laughs) to get experience. Thank you for the plug. Now, this one might be tricky for you because it sounds like you've done a lot of cool research, but do you have a favorite nature moment? I like to call it nature because nature is so neat and it's always amazing us. So maybe a moment where you've been out in the field, either for personal or for work, that's just taking your breath away. Yeah, I've been I've been really fortunate to travel to a lot of different places that have really different ecologies. Can I give a couple? Sure. Okay. We've got time. Okay, cool. So when I was an undergraduate, I was fortunate to go to uh, the Bahamas and we were doing a course in island ecology. And while I was there, we were we were out snorkeling and I was able to dive and swim next to a hammerhead shark, which was absolutely incredible. And it just dove into the deep after 
probably about 15 minutes of us just swimming around watching it. It was it was incredible. Um, Were you scared? Wasn't that scared. Generally, hammerheads aren't as as frightening as some of the other sharks that might have been around. So. <laughs> okay. But but it was definitely uh, it was it, you know we were there were several of us so that probably gave me some false sense of security. <laughs> Maybe the adrenaline spiked a little bit, but didn't go quite into scared mode. <laughs> Absolutely, and also another adrenaline moment. This was probably a little bit more scary for me when I moved to Arkansas. Arkansas is a very different place than Connecticut, where I grew up. It's a lot hotter. There's organisms that can actually do some damage to you other than uh, other than ticks and things like that that you'll find in the in the northeast and here in here in Ontario and one one day my friends and I were out fishing the river and here comes a cottonmouth swimming right at us and so for anybody not familiar with cottonmouth they they are a venomous species and you can really identify them when they open their mouth and their mouth is a, a beautiful white and so it was a juvenile cottonmouth just coming straight at us, despite this being a cold water stream. And I was with uh, a couple of, of herpetologists, and they thought it was just fine to pick it up. So we got to look at it nice and close. So they, they grabbed it, and it was frightening for me because it was coming at us fast, but they were excited. It, it was an incredible experience. Sounds like you were with the right people for that to be a nature moment. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. You got to be with the right people for sure. So those listening at home, please don't go picking up cottonmouth. <laughs> do not. Do not. All right. So finally, last question. If someone wanted to get involved with your organization or learn more about what you do, where should they go? What should they be checking out? Well, if you want to learn more about Fisheries and Oceans Canada, you can go to dfo-mpo.gc.ca. That's the official website. And they're also on pretty much every social media platform. So uh, check them out there. In terms of some of the stuff that I do, you can you can find some summaries of my research at, at carllamoth.com. Pretty easy to remember. And you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at, I'm at Carl Lamoth. So I'm on there relatively frequently tweeting out science opportunities as well as new science and things that I'm working on. Awesome. Okay, I lied about the last question because I have a question for you. Small-bodied fishes, if there was one thing you wanted somebody to know about them or like a really cool fact, what would it be? Really putting you on the spot. Mm, yeah, that's a cool question. And there's a lot of really unique things about uh, small-bodied fishes, and they're really diverse. They can be, they can go from really shallow waters to be living in the deep waters. But I, I think one of the really cool things about small-bodied fishes is the diversity of the way they actually go about reproducing. So some of the species that I'm working with right now actually deposited their eggs in other fishes' nests, so that the other species will guard those nests, nests as well as fan those nests so so that silt doesn't build up. So it's it's really neat that that these kind of ecological things that we we think about from terrestrial la uh, landscape often, you know, birds being these nesting species. Seeing that with small-bodied fishes is is pretty cool. That is very cool as a birder myself, you know, seeing that behavior can go from birds to fish. I think that's very neat. So Thank you for sharing that knowledge and your time with us today. It has been great chatting with you. 
Uh, it, was, it was great chatting with you guys as well. Once again, I'd like to give Carl a big thank you for sharing his time with us. And in honor of our guest, this week's challenge is all about the water cycle. In Canada, most of us take fresh water for granted, but in reality, it is an extremely precious resource. Check out the Canadian Wildlife Federation website and the Bill Nye the Science Guy water cycle video in the show notes to learn more about the importance of water and how the water cycle works if you're not already familiar with it. Once you've done that, I want you to sit down and brainstorm ideas on how to reduce your personal water consumption. I personally look for products that are already dehydrated. I choose bars of soap rather than body wash. I use laundry powder rather than liquid detergent or pods. These also have the added bonus of reducing plastic packaging. Now, don't be greedy, share this with a friend. The more people outside the environmental world that care and take on these challenges, the better. Follow us on social media, tag us in your weekly challenge for a chance to be featured in our newsletter and blog. Now, don't forget to like and subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss any episodes. And follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram to find out more about job opportunities and cool events. That's all for now. Tune in next week when we talk to our first emerging leader. 